0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12 week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk/slash/summer. Hello, and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the journalist and author Celia Brayfield, whose new book takes us back to the 19th century and Writing Black Beauty, Anna Sewell and the Story of Animal Rights. Celia, welcome. Now, a lot of people, particularly of my generation, I think, the moment we hear the words Black Beauty, we think of that immortal theme tune and that black mare galloping across the Heathland on a sort of television adaptation that was playing all through the seventies and eighties, as far as I could tell. What was it that made you want to kind of come back and look at the the original book and go back? Because it's very different from most of the adaptations that have been made subsequently, isn't it?
1: Yes, I mean, you know, to dispose of the dearly loved but completely irrelevant television series um, <laughs> with that unforgettable theme tune, that was it was nothing to do with the book, basically. It was simply the same title and they extrapolated a story after the action of the book had finished. So what made me want to think about Black Beauty? I'm a big champion of popular fiction. I work at a university, which is an uncomfortable place to be a champion of popular fiction, because your colleagues are always calling popular fiction trash or unworthy of discussion. And I mean, there are two reasons that I really want to take up the cause of popular fiction. One is because I like it, and so do millions of other people. And the other is because it affects social change. It really changes the world. Popular books are read by millions of people, and they carry on the public discourse with the public, not with an elite So I was working up an academic book about some of the most influential popular titles ever, going back to Uncle Tom's Cabin, looking at things like Mrs. Miniver, which Churchill said did more than he ever did to get the United States into World War II. My own personal favourite was Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which completely changed my life when I read it.
0: Oh, mine too. It's absolutely gruesome.
1: You would never eat a sausage again. Never. And it's so American that it introduced food standards legislation in America, but not labour laws. But we digress. Um,
0: Which is not what Sinclair (laughs) was planning at all. No,
1: no, you know. So I was looking at um, the genesis of all these books. And when I came to Black Beauty, I thought this is just such an amazing story. It was a book written by a disabled former Sunday school teacher who knew that she was terminally ill. And nowadays, we talk about disability, we talk about mental health, and we talk about the end of life much more openly than we did in previous generations, which made me think, not only is this a wonderful, poignant and really quite historic story, but it's also a story that's got a big contemporary resonance so, I think I want to retell this story for
0: today. And alongside it goes, as you say, the, the story of the way in which Black Beauty contributed to a growing movement in favour of animal rights. Can we start maybe by telling us a bit about Anna Sewell and the world into which she was born? Who was she? As you say, a Sunday school teacher. But Sunday
1: school teacher, yes. She was born into a Quaker family, which almost more than her disability is the most important thing to know about her. She was brought up as a Quaker and although when she had her accident, she was running home from school when she was about 14, she fell over, as any child might have done, slipped on some wet leaves on a rainy day and I... Th- Of course, you know, there were no x-rays in those days, so we don't know exactly what she did. But from the subsequent history, which is of progressive disability, she could walk less and less until really she could not put any weight on the injured foot at all. And with that came periods of depression and debilitating general illness, which might have been something like glandular fever. So... You know, her teens and 20s were a very unhappy time for her. And she left the Quaker movement at that time, as did her mother. She and her mother were very, very close. They were each other's best friends. They were incredibly closely bonded. And as life went on, they actually wrote together. When Anna wrote Black Beauty, her mother was the best-selling author in the family. Her mother wrote what Thackeray sneered at as low-church verse novels. She wrote uh, novels in verse that were intended for people who had quite a low level of literacy. Her mother, Mary Sewell, had worked uh, as a volunteer social worker most of her life, was very acquainted with families that couldn't afford soap or a book, or indeed families where nobody was literate or where one person only would read a book to all the others. And that was the audience she was really writing for. And how
0: much was that the sort of Lady Bountiful style Victorian philanthropy? And how specific was the sort of form that her philanthropy took to her Quakerism and that that sort of background?
1: Well, I, I actually think that good women, in quotes, in the 19th century, get a very bad press. Because good women in the 19th century actually supplied most of what the welfare state supplies now. They ran free schools. They visited people who were in need. They made what resources they had available to people who had virtually nothing. Mary Sewell, during Anna's childhood, was not well off at all. Anna's father was a dear man who they all loved, but he was pretty hopeless as a breadwinner. He failed in his first two jobs he narrowly avoided going bankrupt. He, were, he had a mania for doing up houses, never profitably. And so the family were pretty strapped for cash when, when Anna was young. So she didn't have a great deal to give. But what she did give, she gave. She, she would go round to people's houses with soap and a bucket of water and scrub their floors for them if that was what needed doing. And as time went on, and Anna gained uh, a measure of physical competence and also started riding side saddle, so only one foot was involved, and driving um, the family's pony trap, and they made a bit more money, she could get about. And they ended up in a mining village between Bath and Bristol called Wick, which was a really desperately deprived place. There was coal mining iron mining and ochre mining, mining ochre, the colourant, red and yellow. And they set up a free school for the miners. It's astonishing tribute to them that these men who were working 10-hour days would still find the energy to come to their school in the evening. But they would take on the landlords. Mary must have been the absolute terror of um, the landlords of Wick because if they were offering their tenants' substandard housing, she would go to war with them. And in one case, when the landlord refused to repair the chimney in a miner's cottage, she rebuilt it at her own expense. So there was quite a range of activity that she did. And it was really inspired by the Quaker belief that God lives in every living thing. And the Quaker meetings at this time were not formal religious rituals at all in fact I't th- believe they still aren't. It was more like a, a, a guided meditation. They would sit in silence, which both Mary and Anna found absolutely intolerable. but they would sit in silence for as much as two hours and meditate on what was what were called queries, questions that the leader of the meeting would put to them. So the question might be have we done everything we can to look after the poor in our neighborhood? So they were directly inspired really by Quaker teaching
0: if as you say this the influence of Quakerism can't be overestimated, why did they leave the Quaker movement?
1: Well, to be honest, you can look at that two ways: You can look at what they said, which was Anna was a very downright person. she had to be patient because um of her physical limitations, but she was independent minded. And she simply found, well, the word she used was useless. She found the Quaker meetings useless. Mary's rationale was more complex and more spiritual. She focused on the fact that she hadn't been baptised, that the Quakers didn't believe in baptism. And she felt she ought to be baptised. And that was the issue for her. However, their leaving the movement coincided with Anna's accident In Anna's journal, she wrote several times about having great difficulty in understanding God's purpose in giving her a life of pain and suffering and struggling, really, to live up to the ideals of self-denial that she'd been brought up in. Um, Another thing that put them in conflict with, with... They were what was called plain Quakers. So they did the thee and thou instead of you
0: That must have given a great sense of apartness from Regency Society. (laughs) Um, Well,
1: Anna even talked to her horses with thee and thou. She would say to them, thee must not go so fast. (laughs) Thee will be tired at the top of the hill. But they were plain Quakers and both Mary and Anna were highly creative people. And the plain Quakers were forbidden, really, most of the arts. They were allowed a little poetry They weren't supposed to read, let alone write, novels. They weren't really allowed music, even in a religious ceremony. They weren't allowed painting, except in the sense of doing drawings for natural history illustrations. They weren't allowed to paint in oils. And Anna was a very good musician, by all accounts. She sang beautifully. She painted extremely well. And really, I I think, apart from the loss of faith occasioned by her accident, they were both really struggling to stay within these anti-creative confines.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that one of the differences between Mary's work and Anna's work is that Black Beauty doesn't have, I mean, it does have some, but it doesn't have much reference to God in it, does it? No, it doesn't. No, it's very interesting. Is that, to your mind, to do with her disposition when she was writing it, or is that a sort of strategic... Thing to avoid alienating her potential audience by a, a sort of show of piety?
1: Well, she was writing in the 1870s when shows of piety were not regarded with the cynicism they are nowadays. She was writing really for the boys in the reform school that her uncle had founded. The other best selling author in the family was her Aunt Anne, who I called the David Attenborough of her day because she wrote about natural history. She wrote natural history teaching books for a popular readership. And these were really founded on the lessons that she used to give in this reform school. So you've got these very tough guys. I mean, they're young criminals. They were sent to this school as an alternative to prison in the hope that teaching them a trade would turn their lives round. And these really were the people that Anna had in mind when she was writing her books. I think it was just completely unconscious that there's no reference to God in it. There's also no criticism. There are no sneering remarks about people making cab drivers work on Sunday so they can go to church, for example. There's no sort of indictment of, of some of the hypocrisy that I'm sure they had plenty of opportunity to observe. So I, I don't think this was a major decision on her part. I think it's just the way it happened. Yeah.
0: Now, the other side of the story, which kind of comes together rather beautifully in the way you tell it, is the story of the animals and the relationship to animals that was in the world as as she was growing up. I mean, you use the the wonderful phrase. Agropopolis to describe Regency <laughs> London. Explain um, what an agropopolis was.
1: <laughs> well, it's not my expression. It's Will Almoroth Williams' expression in his wonderful portrait of animals in Regency London. But there were probably more animals than people. I'm even discounting the vermin. There were every single... This is just before the Age of Steam that we're talking. So um, every single source of power was... Horsepower or animal power of some kind or manpower. Mills were turned by old horses um, at the end of their lives just shuffling round in circles. The kings really in the kingdom were the dray horses employed by the brewery. Enormous shire horses could be seven foot high at the shoulder. Extremely dangerous, you have to say, if they were out of control. I mean, that's the scene in Black Beauty where one of the horses describes being injured by an out-of-control dray team. There were dogs and cats, obviously. Um, I find it particularly pleasing somehow that Notting Hill Gate was actually an enormous piggery. There were... (laughs) No, no comment. That beautiful stucco enclave celebrated by Richard Curtis was at this time a colossal pig farm with at least 2,000 pigs. No proper drainage. I will not go into further details, but I'm just very glad nobody has to live like that nowadays.
0: What were the general attitudes towards animals? Because they, as you describe them, and I'm trying to get a sense of how, I mean, for my own interest particularly, how children react to to animals, because I know in the you know eighteenth and early nineteenth centuries there are all sorts of attempts to prevent. Or, or you can see poems and stories written to try and prevent children being cruel to animals. But was torturing animals a sort of standard form of play? Or were people keeping pets in children keeping and relating to pets in the sense that we do now?
1: Um, well, the answer is both. One of the illustrations I chose for the book was, I think, the second in Hogarth's four stages of cruelty. Which shows you in the foreground, actually, I chose the less distressing image in that series. I think it's the one before that shows you little boys torturing a dog. And there's no doubt that people did horrible things for enjoyment. I mean, bull baiting was still legal. And the progress of um, animal welfare legislation was very slow. And the issue was very divisive. We think perhaps that divisive political issues are a new thing, but certainly not. The first two bills that came before Parliament were literally divided the house 50-50. And the, the act that was finally passed, Martin's Act, it's called, in 1822.
0: This is your um, secondary protagonist, Humanity Dick.
1: Yes. Well, I think he's actually my third protagonist because I'd say the American was the second protagonist. But Humanity well, yes, Dick... Forget the American, you come to America, yeah. <laughs> Humanity Dick, larger-than-life Irish MP, finally managed to get... animal cruelty legislation onto the statute books. But the arguments against it were in the Duke of Wellington's Britain. The arguments against it were that young men needed to be cruel. They needed to be capable of brutality because they wouldn't make good soldiers if they were sissified. And that argument seemed to be acceptable. People felt that it might be unpatriotic not to allow young men to become cruel and sensitive towards other living beings. And the opponents of animal welfare legislation were very astute. They dragged the issue across the class divide and lampooned the people who were campaigning as out-of-touch upper-class elite um, who didn't know... Metropolitan liberals. Yes, metropolitan liberals who, you know, didn't want the working man to enjoy himself. It was thorny and difficult, and even after Martin's act was passed, it was very difficult to enforce. And Richard Martin became notorious for actually going out on the streets of London and literally physically grabbing hold of people who were abusing their animals and dragging them in front of magistrates. There's a wonderful cartoon called A Donkey's Day in Court, with a famous incident where he dragged into court a greengrocer who had been beating his donkey. And the greengrocer was so indignant that he actually brought the donkey to court so that the magistrate could see that he was well fed and well cared for. Um, And in this case, the magistrate disagreed.
0: The peculiar thing, detail that you've got of these private prosecutions, as it were, or citizen's Mm. arrest that Martin carried out, is that he'd very often pay the wrongdoer's fine himself. Yes, his.
1: I mean, his. Why would he his, do that? Well, his real argument was. Uh, I mean, he was a man before his time. He wanted the publicity, and he quite clearly said so. Some publications of the time effectively trolled him. I mean, they subjected him to an absolute storm of abuse, and one of them even called for him to be hanged. Whereupon he sued them. The legislation that he had had passed was struggling. Because, for example, the RSPCA, which was an infant organisation at that time, um, appointed two inspectors to look at the way the animals in Smithfield Market were treated. Smithfield Market was trading over a million animals a year at this time. London was quite backward compared to European capitals in that it still had its animal market in the centre of the city. But the magistrates would not accept the evidence of these inspectors on the grounds that they were paid informers. So (laughs) it was really hard um, for the legislation to work. There was quite a long way to go before the public started to
0: see that treating animals badly was wrong. Now, how important was the SPCA or RSPCA as it became in this? Because that seems to be a slightly parallel track as well.
1: Well, I think the R in the RSPCA is very important. And that's Queen Victoria. Very cleverly, I mean, the RSPCA's early history is really one step forward, two steps back all the way along. All its founders, Martin was one of them, went bust. Martin had to leave the country to avoid his debts. But cleverly, in its early days, they asked the Princess Victoria, as she then was, and her mother, if they would become patrons. Now, the most influential dog in history, little Dash, Queen Victoria's Spaniel. She and Albert were both only children, and they were both devoted to their pet dogs. She was devoted to Dash the Spaniel. Prince Albert was devoted to Eos the Greyhound. And they were champions of animal welfare legislation their entire lives. And Queen Victoria's patronage was enormously helpful, as was the financial help of Angela Badette Coots. And you raise the issue of pets. People were starting to keep pets more and more at this time. If you think of, you know, agricultural 18th century Britain, People had contact with working animals in in a, you know, daily, even pet pigs were known. And once you had um, an urbanised post-industrial society, that contact was lost and people started to want to have animal companions. And Queen Victoria not only set an example in this, I mean, so many of her portraits of the family portraits that she commissioned contain animals. But she also patronised the painter Edwin Landseer, and now Landseer's famous for, and this is where I think, I think this is the beginning of Anna Sewell's move towards anthropomorphism, because Landseer's paintings attribute human qualities to animals. You think of the most famous ones. There's the dignity and impudence with the cheeky little lap dog, and the big, big, big bloodhound. And then there's the, um, the one with the stag, the monarch of the Glen, that's right, where the stag is looking tremendously proud of his kingdom. Lancia was obsessed with painting animals. He painted animals all his life from earliest childhood. And he came from a family of engravers. So his paintings were enormously popular. They were reproduced in, in hundreds and thousands. They were clichés on every middle-class mantelpiece. And Anasuel was known to have copied at least two of them as painting exercises. So that's, I think, where you can start to trace this idea of humanising an animal and seeing, you know, good qualities in an animal.
0: Now, another strand of the story is the rise of animal welfare in the States. Mm. Was that a sort of taking place more or less in parallel what was what was going on in the UK? I mean, were the same drivers there, the same kind of impetus, or was that a sort of different thing?
1: It was very different, not least because, of course, we we are talking about the United States, and there wasn't any federal legislation. Um, what there was was a very influential – he's a bit of a dilettante, really – Henry Berg of New York, who was an ambassador in Russia – Um, who became really interested in animal welfare while he was there, came back to America via London and consulted the then leading lights of the RSPCA and decided to set up something similar in New York. And he did exactly what the RSPCA did. He got a wonderful address book. You know, his patrons were virtually all the millionaires in New York. And he did exactly what Richard Martin did. He got the legislation passed and then went out into the streets to try to enforce it against popular opinion. Not least because he went out looking like a, a caricature of a toff in a top hat and tails. At least Richard Martin never did that. But he couldn't really get to the hearts and minds of New Yorkers, he was approached by a young matron from Boston called Emily Warren Appleton, who was the daughter-in-law of, of the senator, and she was an empty nester, really. Her her family were growing up and she was looking for a cause, and this is the cause she chose. And um, one of Berg's big mistakes was he managed to alienate the Matrons of New York, which any Edith Wharton reader will know is, is fatal. But Emily Appleton went back to Boston full of enthusiasm with an English book, actually called A Mother's Lessons in Kindness to Animals, which Berg had given her, drafted some legislation, but being a woman could not get it on the statute book. At exactly the same time, a charismatic radical lawyer in Boston called Henry Thorndike Angel, George Thorndike Angel, forgive me, read a newspaper account of a carriage race in which two young men raced from New York to Boston and both killed their horses by driving them to so hard. And he was so horrified, he decided it was time something was done and he decided on the spot to give up his legal practice and devote his life to animal welfare. He wrote a letter to a local newspaper in Boston saying that's what he was going to do, and would anyone who wanted to join him please come to his address immediately. And Emily Warren Appleton turned up that very morning, and he took her legislation down to the government office, rewrote it, having made very good contacts throughout his legal career blew his opposition out of the water and got the law passed. Angel was an absolute genius. Quite a fellow. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He was extraordinarily dynamic, and he, he pulled together a fantastic committee, but he also went for the hearts and minds of ordinary people, and he decided very early on to try to get to children in school as early as he could. And he produced a newspaper, which was kind of an aggregation, publication, really, called Our Dumb Animals, got its publication subsidised, got it distributed all over the East Coast. But he was looking, he was overtly looking um, for a book that he said would do for the cause of animal welfare, what Uncle Tom's Cabin had done for the cause of the abolition of slavery. And 13 years later, someone sent him Black Beauty.
0: Yes. Yes. And that book, and our listeners may think, you know, we haven't been talking all that much about Black Beauty itself yes. at this stage. Yes. But of course, you know, a structural difficulty of your book is that the the book itself comes right at the end of Anna's story, mm-hmm. and in some sense, right at the end of the uh, mm. of the story that your book describes. Let's move on to it now, because you we know, we think of it as you know one of the best selling books of all time. We tend to think of it as a children's book, mm-hmm. which it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the circumstances that we know of its? how much we know about how it was written and what she was thinking about as she wrote it. I mean, there is this thing that she was, as you say, terminally ill when she was writing it. I mean, was it a book that came out of that experience? Was it written in spite of her illness or was it something she tried to get done before the finished post as it were?
1: It was written in spite of her illness. She had worked with her mother, working on her mother's books, as what's nowadays called an alpha reader, really the first reader and the the first editor of her mother's books. What I did in writing Black Beauty was look back at the contact she had had with horses throughout her life and pulled out key moments from the fact that she lived opposite a cab horse stand, you know, the equivalent of a taxi rank when she was a child, Her mother was a farmer's daughter. They spent all their holidays on the family farm. She would have known working horses and she would have learned to ride on the farm horses, for example. What I particularly loved about her story, actually, is that it is the sort of every woman's history of the 19th century. Because all the major social developments of the 19th century impinged on her life, one of which was the railway. Once her father could commute to the bank where he eventually found a reasonable job, she would take him in the pony trap to the station. She was the family coachman. And I do think that that one of the family friends who left a record of them said that she studied for black beauty at that time in her life. And I think that's very true. I mean, she would have, you can envisage them arriving at the station with all the other drivers, some professionals, some not, you know, talking to the other drivers about their horses, seeing how people were going, seeing, you know, the day-to-day difficulties of owning a horse. What happened if your horse cast a shoe
0: and you couldn't afford the farrier, for example? It's a very close social observation, isn't it? I mean, again, those of us brought up on the TV series will not realise that Black Beauty goes through, in that book, any number of lives and identities. Yes. I mean, at various points, you know, she's not called, Be- or he is not called Black Beauty all the time. He's Black Beauty and Black Oster and Jack mm-hmm. and Blackie and Old Crony and has all sorts of different <laughs> names and roles and lives. Yes. And he's a town horse and a country horse. I mean, Is it a sort of every horse's history of, of that well, time as well? It it. It is a trajectory
1: that was very observable. Beauty begins as a, a well-bred, dearly loved riding horse from a well-off country family and is virtually on his way to the knacker's yard when he's, well, I'm spoiler here, he's virtually on his way to the knacker's yard when he's rescued by his final owners. So the book does have a happy ending. But You know, his stablemate Ginger in the most famous scene in the book is worked to death on the street as a cab horse. And that was just everyday life all around people um, living in 19th century cities. And even before that, I found a real precursor to black beauty in a comic opera song um, called The High Metal Racer which was about a racehorse that ended its days dying in harness, pulling a cart. So it was almost a cliche um, of a horse's life that, you know, when it was young, good looking and energetic, it would have a good life. And Black Beauty, of course, loses a lot of his fitness because he's badly looked after. He goes lame because somebody doesn't pick his feet out. Um, He nearly dies because the stable boy doesn't cover him up with a rug when he's hot, um, but does let him drink a huge bucket of cold water, which is guaranteed to make a horse very ill. So that story of a horse's life was, you know, something Anna could see all around her in all the working horses um, that
0: she knew. Do you think Anna, as she wrote it, had in mind that it would be a book that was, I mean, I think, Probably, maybe the answer to this is sort of obviously yes, it was didactic. But do you think she saw it as something that could affect social or even legal change? Or do you think it was sort of just intended to encourage individuals through empathy to, you know, for instance, remember to put a blanket on the damn horse or pick its hooves <laughs> or, or show a bit more consideration for it on a sort of person by person level? I mean, do you think she had a scheme in mind for the book?
1: No, I don't think she did. She was very ill. And the the roles between her and her mother were reversed somewhat in that when she was too ill, she dictated to her mother, which then raises the question of how much of this is actually her mother's work. But then there is also the question of how much of her mother's books was actually her work. But she didn't really think that she was writing a book in the beginning. She started, as a lot of people do with her first book, just writing little sketches and not really daring to think that this is actually a book. And then gradually, after two years at least, she started to pull it all together and see that it, you know, see the, see the arc of the story, if you like, and see that it could actually be a book. And I think she was thinking of the boys in in the reform school. I think she was thinking of... You know, generally, she was thinking, for example, of the cabmen who drove past her house. There's a lovely description of her leaning out of her window and calling to a cabman on the street to check something with him because she was very anxious to get everything right, she said. So the book was a slow burn. I mean, she lived for about six months after its publication. And it did immediately, immediately, it got some very positive reactions from her immediate circle and from people who were sympathetic to the cause of animal welfare to whom it was sent. So she had a sense of how well it was going to do before she passed away. But I think she would have been absolutely overjoyed to find out how successful it actually was. And it is a book that people absolutely adore. I was talking to uh, a friend this morning who confessed that she had read it 33 times when she was young and cried
0: every time. Um, How good a book do you think it is um, with your university professor hat on? With my university professor hat on.
1: Well, as a champion of popular fiction, I'm going to say it's an extremely good book. It's actually a brilliant book because it is intended to reach the readership for which it was written. Anna's mother, Mary, was absolutely overt about uh, her lexical choices, and in a forward to some one of her early books said, I am writing for people to whom reading does not come easily. So I am going to use very simple language, and I'm going to... M- Mary used mostly words of one syllable, and... So did another of um, Anna's close relationships, a writer who's called a proto-feminist nowadays, Sarah Stickney-Ellis. She wrote what were called conduct books, books about how women ought to be living. She was inspired by Queen Victoria's accession, but she also wrote a foreword saying, I am not addressing this book to aristocratic women. In fact, Sarah Stickney-Ellis thought... Uh, aristocratic women were terrible parasites and a very bad influence on everybody. She robustly said, Napoleon called us a nation of shopkeepers, and I take that as a great compliment because it's shopkeepers' wives who run the world, really. So they were very clear about who they were writing for and also enormously dexterous as, you know, a pair of writers They began the day by reading poetry instead of the traditional Bible reading. They wrote all morning. They went out and enjoyed nature, usually with Anna driving in the afternoon. And then all the evening, they would play word games. Or they also read to each other. And there's a wonderful description in Mary's biography of them binge reading just as anyone nowadays would binge watch a Netflix series. They binge read a book until three o'clock in the morning because they found they couldn't put it down. And the product of all that is is a tremendous facility. I mean, it's it's incredibly well written, even though it's written very simply.
0: And how radical is it that it was narrated by the horse? I know much is often made of Tolstoy's short story, narrated mm. by a horse, but mm. Sewell got there a good decade or two earlier, I think. Were there any precedents for this? Well, animals with human characteristics
1: pop up in literature right, going right back to Aesop's fables. Yeah. and but They then, don't normally
0: narrate those stories, do they?
1: No, they don't. That was the real difference. And the real difference for Black Beauty was that she wanted the horse to behave like a horse. She didn't want the animal to behave like a human for some moral purpose. She wanted the horse to behave like a horse so people could understand how horses behaved. So we see him as a young horse. His owner very thoughtfully pops him into a field with some other horses who are a bit more mature. And there's a railway at the bottom of the field. So the first time he hears the train, he's absolutely terrified. And then he sees that the other horses are fine with it. And he ends up almost laughing at himself, saying, "Oh, I was so frightened the first time." So the whole idea is to make people understand the way horses react to things and to really gain uh, sympathy or empathy for them.
0: And this had a practical issue, even if as you say Anna didn't have one in precisely in mind. What was the great contribution of Black Beauty to legislation? You know, you've used examples like. Mm. Up in Sinclair, or you could mm. mention the water babies maybe, or the um mm-hmm. Uncle Tom's cabin most notoriously. What was the great Black Beauty payoff?
1: Well, in legislation you can, um one of the things that um she specifically indicted was the use of what's called the bearing rein. It was a piece of harness that is actually in some parts of the world still in use. It forces the horse to draw his chin in, it stops him dropping his head, makes him look very flashy. And of course, all those Regency drivers wanted a flashy looking horse, but it deforms the horse's neck, interferes with its breathing, and it it could actually cut the horse's mouth. I mean, Angel wrote of finding a horse that had been harnessed with the bearing rein with a two inch cut in its mouth. And it wasn't at all unusual to see the horses pulling fancy carriages to have blood flecked foam around their mouths. And that was outlawed pretty quickly. The legislation was extended so that it was legal in Britain. But I think it was more a hearts and minds thing that made the real difference. I mean, the RSPCA was trying to get people to treat working horses better. They had produced a manual of horse mastership written by a retired cavalry veterinarian who began with the most unbelievably patronising and insulting introduction, um, saying, you men, you men who don't know how to look after your horses, well, we're going to tell you. Whereas technically it was perfectly sound, um, the tone of it was offensive. And furthermore, they used to try and promulgate it or promote it by calling meetings of cabmen in Branston Square. Now, cabmen were going home to the East End So they were not only losing fares while they were at this reading, but they had to whip up their very tired horses and go out all the way to the East End to get home. So funnily enough, this wasn't working very well. But Black Beauty is such a persuasive book. You know, it's so engaging um, that it was actually a pleasure to read. There's no judgment in it although people do behave very badly to horses in it, she always makes it clear why, and she doesn't condemn. Um, she just leaves the reader to draw their own conclusion. So it was much, much more successful in getting through to people. But it's great
0: kind of explosion. I mean, what took it from being a well-regarded, decently selling book in the UK to mm. the international mm. All time bestseller. It's now gone. Was our friend Angel again? I yes. Mean, it really took off in the states, didn't it?
1: He absolutely weaponized it. I mean, he crowd its publication through his magazine. He went on a forty city promotion tour, which would it would be hard going for a modern author, and he was doing it on horseback and by by railway. And he had also through his magazine begun to draw the animal welfare um, world together. So there had been, I think, a couple of years before he published Black Beauty, an international conference of animal welfare organisations. So he had actually created an international marketing network. And he was very happy for the benefit of the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to sell foreign rights to the book. He bought the American rights off the English publisher. So he's the person really who made it into an international bestseller. The English publishers had done quite well with it. I think that sold something like 95,000 copies when he appeared on the scene. But you set that against the sales of Anna's mother's biggest bestseller, which sold over a million copies. So it was a modest success, and it wasn't really until Angel absolutely, well, weaponized is the only word. He exploited the book to its absolute maximum. It's very difficult to establish claims for book sales, but he claimed that in its first year it, in America, it outsold the Bible, which many people would have argued with him uh, if he'd
0: got that wrong. So... He's he's the man, really. There or thereabouts. Yes. And just before I let you go, can I ask, when was it that we started thinking of this as a children's book then? Do you have a sense of that?
1: I, I think it was really when working horses started to leave our lives. You know, early, the most famous edition of Black Beauty, illustrated by Lucy Kemp Welsh with the most ravishing drawings, coloured drawings, coloured illustrations, was, um, I think, the 1920s. I mean, I'm old enough that I can still remember coal men, for example, and milkmen with horse-drawn carts. But really, after World War II, horses really disappeared from our streets. So I think as working horses became less and less frequently seen, there became fewer and fewer of them, the fact that the book was so readable and so accessible, made it into a children's classic. Celia Brayfield, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam.
0: We hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, I'm afraid the podcast that never sleeps is taking a holiday. So we'll see you in September.